Welcome to the Truth of a Comfort Show. Today's returning guest is James Corbett of the Corbett Report. He's here to talk about BlackRock and some of the other financial giants who seem to be buying up everything. And then also just the general trend of monopolization. He previously came on to talk about hopium and also the media. And I always really appreciate your time, especially uh, the time of night you have to do these things. So it's just really good to have you here again, James. How are you doing? I'm doing as well as can be expected under the circumstances. Thank you for having me back on. Yeah, so just to kind of jump straight in, some people have heard of BlackRock, some people probably have never heard of them. Um, would you just kind of explain to people who they are and just a brief history of how, to, how they was founded? Sure. Um, if you go to the uh, Bastion of Truthiness Wikipedia, you can get the standard um, encapsulation of BlackRock in a few words. So they're a they're an asset management company. They're an investment firm. You might see different ways that it's described, but I don't think any one of them quite does justice to what BlackRock has become anyway over the years. It started out specifically as uh, an investment proposal that the founder, uh, Larry Fink, took to the offices of the Blackstone Group, um, which uh, is a an investment, um, investment firm that's been around for quite a, a long time. And uh, Larry Fink had just come off of a terrible horrible. He was something of an investment wonder kid who was a rising star on Wall Street until at uh, First Boston Bank, he managed to lose $100 million in a single quarter. And that was back when $100 million actually was a lot of money. I suppose that doesn't sound like a lot in this day and age. But anyway, it was a it was a pretty big loss. And supposedly, at least the lore has it that Larry Fink was reeling from this. How did how did he go so wrong? What you know? What was happening? And he decided he would dedicate the rest of his career to risk management and and uh, finding out how to invest, you know, in in less risky ways, etc. So everything that he did from then on would be risk focused and pricing risk into all of his investments. Blah blah blah. He went cap in hand to um, Steve Schwartzman and uh, and the others at Blackstone, and basically managed to get money to start a sort of upstart within Blackstone which would be a risk-based or risk management um, approach to investment. And so he got a little bit of playing money, essentially, to start building up a portfolio. And um, so he did so, and it started to become more and more successful. And as it did so, they uh, he was talking to Stephen Schwartzman about uh, spinning this off as, his own, as its own company. And they could hit up upon the wonderful idea. Oh, I know. We'll we'll give it a family name. So Blackstone birthed Black Rock, and that is why they have the similar name. And in fact, it's uh, something gives them a bit of delight to think of the people who get confused by that. Ha ha ha. Anyway, so that's sort of the origin story of Black Rock, at least as it is told uh, in public. And from that point in the early 1980s, uh, essentially Larry Fink was able to parlay. The, uh, the money that he was making from BlackRock and uh, into an huge uh, uh, amounts of money, um, mind-boggling amounts of money. Um, it was already, I, I think, standing um, with $165 billion of assets under management uh, in 1999. And, w- and then it went public on the New York Stock Exchange um, in, in that year at $14 per share. Um it quickly started acquiring a bunch of other companies, State Street Research and Management. It re- acquired man- uh, Merrill Lynch Investment Managers, uh, Seattle-based Quellos, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And by essentially 
uh, within a decade of going on the stock exchange in 1999, it was now managing $1 trillion. But the party didn't start, stop there. It, in fact, only started rolling downhill and collecting even more momentum as the uh, global economy started to careen off the cliff in the 2008 meltdown, um, BlackRock started to make bank, essentially, off of that. Um, at this point, it was not only really just doing asset management for investors who were looking to invest in this or that particular equity or to you know, or, or exchange-traded fund or something. No, it was also advising. It was consulting. It was buying and selling. It was acting as a consultant even to the Federal Reserve itself. And it was really in that time of crisis in the financial meltdown that BlackRock really started to become this world bestriding behemoth that it has since become. Um, Larry Fink was on speed dial from all of the uh, gaggle of banksters that were wondering how what to do uh, as the, uh, the economy was careening off the cliff. And... Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner had Larry Fink on speed dial. They discussed, they, they um, personally conversed dozens and dozens of times during that few, uh, few months of crisis. And essentially at the end of it, BlackRock became um, the, the sort of the top of the dog pile, as it were, when it came to Wall Street um, giants. And from that point, it started to leverage power, not just in the financial world, but in the political world, and started to uh, essentially buy out bankers and politicians and people in the industry and finance, etc., and bring them on board as board members, as consultants, as advisors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, it got to the point where on the cusp of 2019, which was a particularly important year for BlackRock, basically everyone who was anyone had at least some sort of connection to BlackRock by that point, either by proxy or directly. And that was reflected in the incredible events of 2019, which people, might, I, I suppose, probably don't know because we think of what happened in 2020 as the basis for not just, of course, all of the health and biosecurity and all of that, but the financial um, uh, ramifications of what happened in 2020. Uh, were, are we okay? I saw yeah, you kind of yeah, blanking. Sorry, but yeah, I'm still here, I'm still here. The uh, the financial ramifications of what happened in 2020, a lot of people will simply say, well, of course, there was a global shutdown, lockdowns, and trade came to a halt. Of course, there was going to be ramifications. But actually, um, when you actually look at the figures, you see that the real uh, uh, dislocation in the economy happened in September of 2019. And people might remember hearing something about there was some sort of crisis in the repo markets in September 2019, and there was some kind of injection of funds or something and there was a bit of banking panic i don't remember anything about that well actually it turns out that was incredibly important and as i go on uh, to, to talk about in this blackrock documentary uh, essentially what happened is blackrock through its incredibly important um, string of network of advisors and former uh, heads of central banks etc cetera, etc cetera, came out with a report arguing that in the event of the next crisis, the next financial crisis, central banks are going to have to try something different because they've already tapped all of the different uh, lifelines, essentially, that they had during the 2008 crisis. And interest rates can't go any lower than negative, right? I mean, there's only so much room that you have to really tinker with uh, with uh, monetary policy. So what we have to do is try something completely different. And they came up with this idea of injecting money not into the bank's 
to capitalize the banks so that the banks could then lend that money out into Main Street, which is the traditional way that central banks have been the backstop of the economy. But no, in this case, central banks would inject money directly into the economy through these special purpose investment vehicles or whatever they called them. And so there was this proposal that they came up with in August of 2019. Later that month, there was a meeting of central bankers in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which they have every year. And um, in this particular meeting, they were discussing BlackRock's proposal. And the very next month is when we saw that crisis in the repo markets. And then suddenly, uh, central bank interventions started making their way directly into the economy, exactly as BlackRock was calling for. So we see, we can, you can actually see on the, on the graphs and on the charts, and I show this in the documentary, you can see that there was actually a moment at which the, uh, the essentially the injection of central bank money and the holdings in the uh, commercial bank system started to march in lockstep. And that moment was September, 2019. So essentially BlackRock in a sense was dictating central bank policy um, by mid-2019. And that should be worrying for everyone because, of course, BlackRock is a private company that is now puppeteering and stewarding over the, well, technically private central bank of the United States, the Federal Reserve, or the Federal Reserve banks, which themselves are private entities. Um, But at any rate, supposedly they are the public stewards of the public trust of the currency of the United States. But what does it mean that you have a, a private company with this Larry Fink character who, oh, by the way, what was it that he was working on in the 1980s that he lost $100 million on first Boston? Oh, that's right. Collateralized mortgage obligations, CMOs, which became the basis for the 2008 meltdown. He was the one who actually was literally one of the people developing that at first Boston in the 1980s. That was part of his whiz kid. Oh, this guy's a financial genius. He's taking computers and doing all these complicated calculations to basically take mortgage obligations and dice them up into tranches and sell them off to investors. Here's the the AAA certified good as gold uh, kind of tranche of debt obligation. Don't worry, guys. This And this is like the B grade. You don't want to buy that. But you can buy the AAA and it's, it's good as gold. Don't worry about it. Well, that's exactly what caused the 2008 meltdown. So in a sense, kind of makes sense that the Federal Reserve turned to Larry Fink to sort through the mess of the 2008 meltdown, because in a sense, he created it. But anyway, um, it gave him more power and um, money and leverage to continue on with an agenda. And as I also go on to show in the documentary, essentially, what is that agenda and what is BlackRock working towards? Well, Larry Fink is not shy about this. He's talked about it openly many times. Um, He was essentially waving the ESG flag, environmental, social, government, uh, governance policies, um, which people might know as the sort of social, the corporate social credit system that's coming into view in which corporations will be ranked and graded according to their essentially fealty to the globalist agenda is what it ultimately boils down to. And um, he was waving that flag until it became an unpopular flag to wave and people started to identify ESG as maybe something they don't want to be supporting. And you had uh, a divestment 
enforcement movement of sorts that was starting in the United States. Various states attorneys general were threatening to divest or already starting to divest funds from BlackRock because they were saying, hey, you can't be waving this ESG flag and talking about how companies need to do all of these social and um, and and uh, uh, climate change sort of mitigation things that it's going to cost those corporations billions of dollars. No, we're putting money into BlackRock so that you can invest it in equities that will make us money. We're not here to do some sort of social agenda or something to change, you know, corporations and the way they function or something like that. So when that happened uh, over the course of the past year or so, Larry Fink has literally come out and say, said, well, now ESG is like a toxic term, so I don't want to touch it. I don't want to talk about that. But guess what? He's it's not like he's giving up the agenda um, from literally the past 24 hours. BlackRock CEO Fink, quote, world needs to get back its moral compass. And he's weighing in on the latest Israel, Palestine, and specifically the um, Harvard, uh, the Harvard investment fund. Essentially, um, was there was a big kerfuffle because some student groups had signed a letter that was basically condemning Israeli actions um, there, and and you had uh, Bill Ack- Ackman. Um, coming out and saying, well, everyone who was part of the signatory to that letter should be a bit blackballed from ever doing business in the United States again. And Larry Fink is coming out and saying, well, yes, well, we need to find our moral compass again. And anyone who said anything that goes against the globalist agenda, essentially, will never work for BlackRock and corporations should be doing this. Anyway, why does this matter? Who cares what Larry Fink says? Well, the fact that uh, BlackRock is now not just not just managing directly to, uh, under management something like $10 trillion of assets, but through Aladdin, their proprietary AI investment risk management software that they license out to even their own competitors and to everyone else. That is, it, uh, it's been estimated that it's upwards of 20, 30, who knows how many trillions of dollars under management of Aladdin. Um, because they don't even disclose that figure ultimately. Um, anyway, it's a, a significant share of the entire um, investable capital of the earth is now in one way or another being stewarded over by this proprietary software that BlackRock is selling. So yes, Larry Fink has, when he speaks, markets listen, corporations listen, and he can he ha- is wielding financial power to essentially direct the course of global events, essentially, at this point. And the fact that he's talking about, say, oh, Ukraine, the Ukraine war is a great opportunity to start digitalizing, digitizing um, citizenship. And we can we can affect real changes in the governance infrastructure of the country. And it will be a nice, you know, test for various uh, technologies that we'd like to roll out. And uh, who who appointed Larry Fink head of the world? Well, at any rate, it seems like he increasingly is. I think that was a really good uh, summary of obviously BlackRock's history, some information about Larry Fink and some of the kind of policies he's pushing using his influence, power, and as you said, you know, the amount of assets BlackRock actually holds. So you can can you just kind of paint a picture for people for that? Because there's obviously loads of videos that have kind of been going out if, you know, you follow those kind of type of accounts uh, that, you know, they have shares in you know, pretty much every Fortune 500 country. Uh, company in the West and the US. So can you kind of just lay out for people just kind of the picture of how many uh, shares they kind of have in the different types of companies? 
Sure. Well, essentially, if you look at pretty much any company in the Fortune 500, they are going to have uh, BlackRock as one of the top three institutional investors. Um, not every single company, but almost every single company. And there was a uh, there is a website that tracks this, and I don't have the the URL off the top of my head, but there is a uh, a, a website that is taking a look at uh, Vanguard and. BlackRock and State Street, which are three of the asset management firms that together essentially are the top three institutional holders in, you name it, Amazon and Apple and Walmart and Pfizer and almost anything else that you can think of of prominence on the corporate scene. Well, that is something that I addressed in the follow-up to this How BlackRock Conquered the World report. I wrote a report on how Vanguard conquered the world because, as I pointed out at the end of the BlackRock report, yeah, look at all of these things that I'm highlighting, you know, BlackRock, number two investor in Walmart, BlackRock, number two investor in Coca-Cola, BlackRock, number two investor in Amazon. But who's number one? <laughs> and it's almost invariably, it's Vanguard. Well, who's Vanguard and what are what are they doing? And essentially, there's... There's a long story there, uh, which I can get into if you want. But <laughs> I guess the long story short is that, yes, of course, Vanguard and State Street and BlackRock are the top institutional investors in these different companies because, uh, generally speaking, a lot of their money, not all of it, but a large section of their, their the capital that they're managing is invested in exchange-traded funds or mutual funds, index funds of various sorts. So what does this mean? Uh, essentially, if you're buying into an ETF that's tracking, say, the S&P 500 or a mutual fund that's tracking the S&P 500, what you're doing is you're buying a fund that isn't being managed in the traditional sense, like some manager is sitting there buying and selling stocks to try to you know, keep up the, the value of the portfolio. No, it is what it uh, what an index fund does is it takes the S&P 500 and says, you know, here are the companies ranked from one number one to number 500, and here's their proportional share of the overall index of the S&P 500. And as they move up and down, we're, we're going to buy a proportional share in in proportion to how much of the, the index they, they account for. So Amazon is, you know, 7% of the S&P 500. We will invest 7% of the capital in Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. And when, as that moves up and down, it's just automatically they will buy and sell stock. So don't worry, guys. It's not like BlackRock and Vanguard and these companies. It's, they're not. Uh, you see, the, the the way they would wield power is they would threaten Coca-Cola, say, uh, you know, if you guys don't whatever, uh, uh, donate more money to climate change mitigation or whatever, then we're going to sell all our stock in Coca-Cola. So you better do what we say. Right. But that's not how this is working. It's an automatic buying and selling that's going on in relation to the S&P. It has not. There's no human guarding this process. It's an index fund. It's all passive. It's not actively managed. Right. So it's not like you guys, you conspiracy theorists are saying, you know, uh, these top institutional investors, it doesn't matter. Well, there is an element of truth to that, but there is an element of falsehood as well, because along with just the fact that BlackRock and Vanguard and these other uh, asset managers, yeah, they're they're uh, essentially passively buying and selling stock on these in, in index funds um, for the benefit of their share their investors. But they actually, when they're buying and selling these stocks, they are also getting the voting shares of those stocks. Because, of course, they get to vote on uh, various proposals that are made at board meetings. They get to vote on who comprises the board of these various companies. And up until very, very recently, 
um, BlackRock at any rate, um, and Vanguard, actively, they they were the ones at those companies, they were the ones deciding wh- how to vote on the various uh, uh, company boards, etc. It wasn't the, sh- the investors. No, no, no. Don't worry. At Vanguard, we will take care of that. And we here's our investments uh, principles. And this is what we will do. But don't worry. We will take care of the voting, guys. You don't worry about that. And as has been pointed out, well, that essentially makes BlackRock and Vanguard um, into kingmakers within these companies. Because who gets appointed to the boards of the companies? This is a pretty important thing that can really shape the future of the company. And as has been pointed out, Chevron and other places, um, their incredibly important um, decisions have been made on the back and with the support of a BlackRock or in opposition to Vanguard, for example. So yes, these companies have power that they can wield. And yes, it shouldn't need to be said, but a company that has trillions of dollars of assets under management and whose CEO writes an annual letter to CEOs saying, you know, this is the way, the, this is the power of capitalism, ESG, et cetera, et cetera. That is going to sway markets. And as I point out in my BlackRock documentary, you know, it's not exactly rocket science that when someone with, say, $10 trillion of assets under management, even if it's passive management, starts talking about a specific trend or a specific thing that he wants to encourage, people in boardrooms across the land listen to that and are responsive to it. So that's pretty basic, and you don't need a, a team of scientists to study that and come up with a report, but you can get one because you, there have been peer-reviewed studies that they that, that have been done that say that found after months of diligent study and research that yes, it turns out corporations are responsive to people like Larry Fink. Wow, <laughs> who would have guessed it? So yes, there there are layers of this, and there are nuances to to this argument and so for people who know nothing about the finance world and investment and what have you they can oversimplify it in ways that will be easily debunkable by the uh, fact checkers out there um, but essentially the the essential underlying sort of thesis uh, the conspiracy thesis if you will is correct to uh, 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 in in a certain way anyway yes these companies definitely have power over the trillions and trillions of dollars that they are investing and uh, the companies that are being invested in. So that's a long way of answering. But essentially, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street own uh, are the top institutional investors in almost every company that you can think of that is of any consequence, any multi-billion dollar company on the planet, um, or certainly in the United States anyway, is going to have them in their top three institutional investors. What would that mean for competition? Because <clears throat> as you said, they are top investors for different pharmaceutical companies, Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, and then you have the arms companies, and then you have the tech companies, and you have you know, uh, car manufacturers, literally the media all intertwined. So what, what does this mean for competition? Because obviously as well, one point to make is that BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, you know, whoever else you want to chuck in, they're also the top investors of each other. So, yeah. So, what does that mean for competition? That if they have shares in, you know, PepsiCo and Coca-Cola, who are meant to be, you know, Coke versus Pepsi, yeah. you know, in the public getting, you know, oh, you better who's better, wherever it may be, and then they actually have the same shareholders, and then those shareholders are also the same shareholders in each other. What what does that mean for competition? And also, I guess, influence because you know they'd be making decisions together because they're aligned in, you know, financially. 
Right. Absolutely. And that's an incredibly important question, because, as I say, there's the sort of the conspiracy um, amateur sort of way of looking at these uh, these companies and what they're doing and uh, and raising the alarm about them. But when you look at the actual academic critiques and the financial uh, people on the inside of the financial world, et cetera, the criticisms that are are brought up with regards to these companies is along those lines. There's a couple of things that are important. Um, one of which is that the the very idea of the um, the index fund, um, the, as I'm talking about this passive investment strategy where there's no manager that's sitting there buying selling stocks, it's all just sort of an algorithm. You know, this stock goes up, so we buy that, and this stock goes down, so we. It's all passively done um, from the very beginning um, when it was first put together by the founder of Vanguard, um, John. Jack Bogle back in the 1970s, it was called Bogle's Folly. And basically, there were people who were saying that this is this is communism by another name, <laughs> etc. Because it goes against the, the capitalist principle of reward the successful and punish the poor. Uh, there's no there's no sort of active carrot and stick market mechanism for uh, rewarding um uh, certain actions and and punishing others it's it's all just this this passive thing then you and you sort of spread it out over it, you're not trying to invest in this company because they're doing a good thing and this company because i like that you know they've they've structured their uh their earnings in this way or what have you no it's you're kind of just investing out in an entire index and you're just spreading it all around so that yeah as long as the index keeps rising you will make money i mean it's just that's that's literally how it works but you're not you're not betting on individual companies, etc. So, uh, what does that mean in terms of the the, uh, the again the market reward slash risk mechanism, and does that break something? So that's been around since the beginning of this idea that sort of the unease with the way that this is going. The other part is uh, the gradual consolidation of more and more and more and more assets into fewer and fewer and fewer hands, and you don't have to go very far for that critique in particular. Uh, as I say, John Jack Bogle, founder of Vanguard, um, what did he say just a few years ago um, before he passed away about the growing market share of Vanguard and BlackRock? Uh, he, uh, he was kicked out essentially of Vanguard in the late 90s, so he didn't always uh, speak the company line as it were. But he said, um, most observers expect that the share of corporate ownership by index funds will continue to grow over the next decade. It seems only a matter of time until index mutual funds cross the 50% mark. If that were to happen, the big three, i.e. Vanguard and BlackRock and State Street, might own 30% or more of the U.S. stock market, effective control. I do not believe that such concentration would serve the national interest, he said with a degree of understatement. Yeah, yeah, that's incredibly concerning, isn't it? To the idea that three companies would have 30% of the U.S. stock market under their direct management. That's, I mean, that's crazy, obviously. Um, that is a consolidation that it's difficult to even wrap your mind around, given this the scale and quantity and the size, the unprecedented size and depth of the U.S. market at this point. Um, that's trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars in the hands of three companies. Of course, that's not in the national interest. That's not in anyone's interest, except, of course, the people who are at the tops of these companies. So that is, by its, I mean, just on its face, 
obviously presents a serious threat. Um, and the real question is, what do you do about that? Because ultimately, I mean, who is who is puppeteering or stewarding this process? It's the investors. It could be you. You could buy into Vanguard's uh, funds. They have various funds that you you could buy into and you could become a Vanguard. I mean, essentially, you become an owner, a part owner, a shareholder in Vanguard itself. That's the way this works. And so you you are part of the process. But more and more people are putting more and more of their funds into these three different companies. And you see this incredible consolidation of monetary control. And as I say, with that, even disregarding the 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 sort of finer details of how BlackRock owns the shares and what you know do they really own them and are they managing those shares or is it just all passive etc cetera, etc cetera. it doesn't re- once you have trillions of dollars under management I think those those finer details are are actually not important the fact that you have trillions of dollars under your direct management is the point um, and should be worrying to everyone and as I say that's sort of the the critique that most academics and et cetera are bringing up at this point. This is, this is becoming a, a national security threat as even Jack Bogle himself, the founder of the, in the index fund freely admits. Yeah. It is pretty incredible just how much money they have invested in. As we've said, you know, every, every big company, you could be, you know, someone's on CNN talking about the Ukraine war, and BlackRock is invested in Times Warner, which I think is the owner of CNN. And they're also the top in uh, shareholders of all the different arms companies. And CNN is sponsored uh, by Pfizer, who they also have the top shareholders in. And then let's say, you know, Zelensky does a speech where he comes out where, as you kind of mentioned earlier, he thanks JP Morgan, BlackRock for their investment in Ukraine. And it's just a cycle, you know, and then again, the other adverts that are on there, <laughs> Again, just even stuff like you know Coca-Cola, a drink. You know, um, we've kind of obviously spoken about um, their influence with you know corporations. Uh, you kind of mentioned it earlier. So, what's kind of their influence in government? How are different governments and agencies calling upon them to, to assist them? Uh, obviously, you mentioned uh, the 2008 financial crisis. So, what kind of influence do you, you see they have uh, with government of the US or any other government uh, you have kind of knowledge about? So, there was one way of framing that um, that problem of the political and and financial interest that it has um, as a conflict of interest um, problem, essentially. Um, you have essentially this investment firm or asset management firm, whatever you want to call it, but it is a consultant and an advisor. It is a buyer and a seller. It's facilitating both sides of every transaction and profiting off of both because it's collecting fees, you know, whichever way things are going. And it also owns these subsidiaries like iShares and these other firms that themselves benefit from sometimes directly from uh, the the Federal Reserve calling on BlackRock to help advise it on how to steer emergency funds, and it uh, steers emergency funds into companies that it already is a shareholder in, or uh, or some of its subsidiaries that directly benefit from the funds that are being injected, etc. So there are, I mean, it, essentially, it's a massive boondoggle any way you look, because again, that consolidation of control into a few hands means essentially those few hands are controlling every transaction that's happening on both sides of the transaction. And um, again, that brings with it all sorts of 
problems. I, I think almost to call it conflict of interest almost downplays the sort of existential threat that exists there and the fact that the economy is increasingly relying on a few um, investment funds to essentially steward all of this capital. And it, that is being increasingly recognized on the banking front. Um, you have this concept of the um, uh, systemic um, Oh, what's the term for it? There is a term that they, that is now being cooked into uh, Basel III and all of these accords, these banking accords. Uh, uh, anyway, systemic uh, bank of systemic importance, whatever it's called. Um, essentially, the idea of the too big to fails. These banks that are that have so much um, in terms of deposits, in terms of um, their investments and holdings and reserves, etc., that if they went under, the entire system would be put at risk. Well, I think. Clearly, a BlackRock or a Vanguard or a State Street are, falls under that that rubric, right? Because clearly, the, with the trillions and trillions of dollars that they're stewarding, at a certain point, you can't have a BlackRock fail. Because if it did, what would that mean for the global economy? Um, and I believe, and I'll have to refresh my memory on this because it's been a few months since I did the research and writing on this. But um, I believe there have been attempts to actually classify BlackRock with that particular label, which brings with it all sorts of certain regulatory requirements and burdens, et cetera. But BlackRock lobbyists were able to effectively um, essentially um, uh, forestall that or put it put it off. No, you're not going to label us with that. Don't worry. And that's another aspect of this. Um, given the fact that BlackRock now employs all of these ex- heads of uh, various central banks and uh, financial advisors and people who are on, for, for example, Clinton, um, one of the Clinton campaign managers, et cetera, et cetera. All of these people who are highly politically connected and connected into the banking world, um, essentially it means that when there is regulations or, or um, talk of anything that would legislatively hamper BlackRock, well, they generally have a foot in the door already um, with lobbyists or with people who literally are involved in those decisions that can quelch anything that would go against the BlackRock interests. So it's accumulating political power in proportion to the capital that it, it manages. From uh, your research, um, do you see BlackRock being invested in the eastern side of the world, so you know, specifically China? As you know, when you look at the shares for you know companies, it's mainly probably U.S. ones with the mm. you know a few European ones. How do you see their investment in the East and China? As obviously Larry Fink, uh, the chairman of BlackRock, is on the board of the World Economic Forum, and I think it was this year that China was kind of—I can't remember the exact role or title they had—but they're kind of like the main country for the World Economic Forum. So do, do you, people kind of do mention they have, you know, investments in black, um, in China? Do you, did you see any of that in your research? Or is it mainly kind of a Western, uh, you know, company? Yeah, no, it, I, I definitely have seen that. And I didn't do the deep dive on the China connections. That will be hopefully for a future report. But definitely there is BlackRock interest in China and financial ties that are going on there. Uh, it's not being neglected. And I think you're right to point out the uh, World Economic Forum linkage there. Um, uh, people might not know that Larry Fink was appointed to the board of World Economic Forum in 2019. And I think that that obviously portends 
something with regards to the the international nature of BlackRock. Uh, yes, it is heavily invested in the U.S. markets, but it is not only invested in the U.S. markets. And yes, there are Chinese interests, and unfortunately, I won't be able to detail them off off the top of my head. But I know Larry Fink has um, definitely had his eye on China. Um, and as I say, um, also on other places like Ukraine, um, for example, where he in his letter to shareholders a couple of years ago was talking about how the war in Ukraine is a wonderful opportunity to accelerate digital currencies and um, the implementation of digital currencies throughout the world. Well, again, what is Larry Fink's interest in this? It's, it's not that it is simply the U.S. or U.S. markets. Obviously, there is a global aspect to what's going on here. Yeah, with Ukraine, that strange video that came out from, I think it was like a Ukrainian official, but some sort of conference maybe where it's like a vision of Ukraine in 2030 and it's like the most advanced society technologically uh, mm. as kind of like a, I guess, the, the way they can reconstruct the, you know, kind of not quite order out of chaos, but that kind of concept of, you know, the country's physically been bombed and destroyed. So let's rebuild it in a new image and one that, I guess makes up for it in the in the Ukrainian mind. Сьогодні вранці президент Путін оголосив проведення спеціальної військової операції на Донбасі. Росія здійснила удари по нашій військовій інфраструктурі. Let's look eight years ahead. 2030. The history of the new Ukraine is studied all over the globe. Why? Because Ukraine became the most digital and convenient country in the world. Scripts have replaced bureaucrats. 500,000 former public servants are successfully integrated in the new economy. No more red tape, but paperless. No more banknotes, but cashless. Yes, we became the first country to abandon paper money. Ukraine now has the best tax system for the IT industry and the most affordable e-residency. Thanks to Ukrainian engineers and programmers, the R&D centers of the world's top technology companies operate successfully, and Ukraine ranks first in the world by the number of startups per capita. Ukrainian courts are guided by artificial intelligence, and all notarial acts take place online. Ukrainian customs is fully automatic and the fastest in the world. Customs clearance and car registration can now be done in three clicks from your smartphone. Because of war and internal migration, we have built the most flexible and modern digital education. Brave military and civilians get quality treatment with modern remote monitoring and e-health systems. Ukraine also has the most effective cyber defense in the world. After the horrors of 2022, Ukraine focused on security systems. Now every production facility has its air defense system, and the sleep of Ukrainians is protected by an ultra-modern iron dome. The Ukrainian government is digital, more like an IT company in terms of the efficiency of implementing decisions, and one can register a land plot, start construction, open a business or get a license, and register a car or real estate from a smartphone automatically in one click. Ukraine is the freest and digital. This is all because international partners and the world's leading technology companies supported the Digital for Freedom initiative and united to help Ukraine recover through digitalization. Building a new Ukraine together, free and the fastest, brave and digital. With BlackRock, Vanguard and State Street, as kind of you know spoke about earlier, there are videos emerging and people are becoming more aware of these companies. I'm sure most people in the general public have still never heard of them or heard of them in passing, considering, you know, they hold, I, th I think it's like 20 trillion in assets. <clears throat> I think there's a Bloomberg um, article just with Vanguard, BlackRock, 
that uh, maybe by like 2030, they have 30 trillion in assets. So do you see people starting to kind of catch on to BlackRock and Vanguard in the general population? And why do you think it's so kind of silent um, that people just aren't, haven't been aware of it? Is it maybe because they have shares in, you know, these different media companies or is it just they're, they just, you know, decided not to speak about it because it's not. A yeah, I think I think there is an aspect of that because Larry Fink certainly isn't one who has traditionally courted media attention and has not been one of the people out in front in the in the camera's face trying to get attention for BlackRock. That's never been the way that he's operated. He is now in the position where I think he is frequently look to what does Larry Fink say about this? What does Larry Fink think? Because he has become somewhat no notorious um, in recent years, but he has never operated that way in the past, never um, courted media attention. And to the extent that, as I point out in the documentary, um, there, uh, there was a German uh, author who, a researcher who worked in the fa finance space, um, who herself had never heard of BlackRock until the 2008 crisis. And suddenly BlackRock was everywhere when you were aware of them and looking for them. Even then, even amongst the general public and even amongst my, uh, myself, amongst myself. <laughs> Sorry, it's a bit late at night for me. But even with myself, I, I, BlackRock was not on my radar at all during the 2008-2009 crisis. I'm sure I heard of them, but I did not know who they were or what they were doing. Um, so there is the, definitely, I think there has been a, a strategy of operating under the radar that at a certain point, whether it's a strategy of, okay, now let's surface and show everyone our wealth. Well, at, at a certain point, I just, I don't think you can hide it. So I think you kind of have to, as I say, Fink has had to come in, out in front of the camera a little bit more in recent years. But certainly, you know, leverage over media, organizations, etc., can certainly go some way towards helping to keep something quiet or to publicize something. And I think BlackRock was going for the former um, previously. Yeah, and no, I think that's an important point that, you know, people, even massive figures, you know, at uh, places like BlackRock, if they don't try and get loads of attention with the media, try to keep away from it, then they're kind of maybe just more left alone than other figures who, you know, all around TV, kind of like Bill Gates, where, you know, they might not disclose how, you know, much money has invested in different things, but he's, you know, the public face of many things, so they get him on. But if you, you know, just kind of stay in the shadows and just, yeah. And you know. actually, that's that's a good comparison, because in Bill Gates case, um, I think he per he was actually actively courting media attention over the past, say, the 2000s, 2010s um, as, as a deliberate strategy to, I think, probably and to some extent, get the public to forget all that Microsoft monopoly business, whatever. No, no, no. Now I'm Mr philanthropy and I'm saving the world. And so I think it was a deliberate PR strategy. Bill Gates wanted his name out there and wanted it tied to the foundation and wanted people to know about the foundation's work, whereas BlackRock and Fink did not want the public to know about it and did not court that attention. Yeah, no, you're, you're probably right there. There's the classic, you know, uh, the Microsoft kind of trials and then he gets hit in the face of a cream pie yeah. and then he starts a foundation and then, you know, He's Mr. Charity. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously only 22 and I remember being in school and we, we had to write something about, you know, companies who would be good for China. And I did it about Microsoft and Bill Gates, you know, being a massive charitable guy. It's just the, you know, that is the first that comes to mind. You think Bill Gates yep. is charitable rather than 
uh, is just a really good kind of businessman and yeah. outwardly, you know, says, you know, that, you know, stuff's for good for business. Um, do, are we just kind of moving away from like BlackRock specifically, mm. you know, especially since the events of 2020, uh, where obviously lots of middle class and normal businesses and even bigger ones obviously got closed down for lockdown. Are we seeing a continuation trend of monopolization in tech, health, you know, just general brands and, and other companies? Have we seen uh, a trend towards more consolidation outside of these, you know, massive invest investment firms, just companies buying up smaller companies, you know, big sharks, you know, eating littler sharks sort of thing? Yes. Yes, we are. And I'm pretty sure that could be quantified. I don't have those numbers in front of me. Um, I think famously, infamously, that process has been at work, say, in the media business for a very long time. And it has become, I think, well known um, that, what was it, six major companies controlled everything that Americans were reading and seeing and hearing on a daily basis in the 1990s. And that became five. And um, I seem to recall, I, I remember watching the um, uh, Roger and Me documentary by Michael Moore uh, many years ago. And I remember on the commentary on the DVD, um, they were talking at, during the pre-rolls where it shows like the Warner Brothers logo, etc. And Michael Moore was riffing on, well, one one of these days, it's going to be Time Warner, Microsoft, Warner, uh, Paramount, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be one corporation with like a really long name. And essentially, we're starting to see more and more that, that come to fruition. That, that That is kind of reality in the media space, I think, famously. But yeah, in a number of different places. The only quibble I would have is I don't think this is monopolization. I think it is oligopolization. Um, it is consolidation, certainly in fewer hands, but it's not one hand. It's not generally speaking down to one corporation, one company, one person, because, and, and I, I think just philosophically, this is interesting because I am fundamentally, I'm interested in how power operates in society. And I think this is, this is sort of the logic of, um, centralization of control is that yes you can centralize and consolidate control down to literally one company or one person a mo monopoly a monarchy but when you do so that that singular um center of power rises so far above that it is inherently unstable and can be easily knocked over but when you have an oligopoly an oligarchy that supports its uh, each other essentially uh it's much harder to knock down and i think that that is the way of picturing what is happening right now um and people in the independent media have probably heard this before but i think it's nonetheless an apt analogy it is sort of the uh the mafiocracy um in that yes you will absolutely have gangs that have turf and they will have turf wars to try to control this or that section of the city or this or that um, trade. Um, but uh, whenever there is a threat from the outside that threatens fundamentally the, the mafia in general, well, then they'll band together and they'll fight that off. And I think that's probably a more fruitful way of looking at this. It doesn't necessarily mean that those five media companies are in lockstep on everything and they're all, you know, they all agree on everything all the time. But they, essentially, they know their business and they know what what will threaten their business and they might fight with each other over share it's for this or that market. But in the end of the day, they're going to support each other in that enterprise. And I think that that's that's unfortunately the more stable way of centralizing power in fewer hands. And that's essentially what we're seeing, I would say, in virtually every sector. Um, we, you look at the food 
industry and the various industries associated with that, the biotech industries and the seed oligopolies, etc. In industry after industry, it's always about consolidating down to a few hands, not, not usually one company, but usually a few that support each other, essentially. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely the correct way to put it. I'm kind of using monopolization as a general term rather than, you know, one singular company or government, you know, owning everything, just a trend of consolidation. And as you said, you know, as well, if it was one company that, you know, one media company that owned all the, you know, the, the TV media, it would be too easy for people to yeah. point that fact out. Wherever you have like Microsoft, right? Uh, when Microsoft gets, you know, 99% share of the OS market or something, then, then it becomes obviously the, the, the center, the, the symbol, and is obviously identifiable and thus will need to be knocked down. But look at what's happened in the social media space. No, it's not one company. It's Meta and X or whatever it's calling itself. And, you know, there's a, there's a few, there's a few options. And of course, some of them are actually the same one, like Insta is also Facebook, is also Meta, and YouTube and Alphabet and its various companies. But anyway, you can separate it out into a few different companies. And that's, um, that that's generally the trend. It's generally a few companies that will, um, as I say, be part of the mafiocracy. Yeah, I guess we would also see that with obviously since major media, uh, sorry, since the internet came out, kind of the media's um, monopoly, again, using that word, but um, uh, their kind of, you know, previous monopoly on information since the internet came out, obviously completely splintered that. But obviously we've seen with big tech, who again, there's not one monopoly, there's a collection of companies who own uh, lots and lots of different smaller companies like YouTube, Google, as you've just said. Um, do you see, again, information being kind of weaponized and um, kind of consolidated since kind of the internet has um, obviously ruined their kind of monopoly on information? Absolutely, yes. Yes, I think this is an important way of understanding what's happening right now. And I think it does give a, a, a good insight into that just general trend of the oligopolization, consolidation, centralization of power and control, um, because it is identifiable and generally understood by the public in the media space specifically. So uh, I've talked about this, for example, in the Media Matrix documentary that I did, or in my Mass Media History online course, I looked at this specifically, essentially the history of the 20th century when it comes to mass media was the history of consolidation, the corporatization and consolidation of media. And that was facilitated by the technology of communication distribution that was available at that time. Because you had these giant printing presses to print the daily newspaper, well, you can't, most people couldn't afford that, but a giant corporation probably could. And then when it became radio and then television and then satellite broadcasting, again, no individual could possibly um, finance that themselves. It had to take this corporate form and that brought with it the essentially the gatekeeping editorial bottleneck of information control, um, which defined late 20th century, where, as I say, most most Americans, most Canadians, most Brits, etc., would have most of their um, information coming from a handful of corporations every single day. And that, that was essentially the information diet. As you say, the information superhighway that we were promised in the 1990s when people were starting to get online um, 
well, it hasn't quite be, uh, worked out that way. Um, but at any rate, it did splinter the information oligopoly, the control that existed there in the late 20th century. And it took it is taking, uh, I don't think we're there yet, but it has t taken a couple of decades, I think, for corporate control to reconsolidate in the wake of that fracturing. And it is happening, unfortunately, and this to me is the greatest tragedy in, to a certain extent, with the active collaboration and, and participation of the public who don't quite understand the significance of the revolution that we lived through, what it really represented, why, why it was revolutionary, and why essentially by volunteering, signing up yourself, actively participating in putting your digital identity, essentially your digital life, into the hands of these few corporations. And okay, you know, RSS, screw that. No, I want to sign up for a Twitter account. Yay, <laughs> etc. When people do that, they don't quite understand what it is they're throwing away and the fact that they're playing into the very process of reconsolidation of information control that was such a problem, I think, in the early 20th century and that this online revolution could have splintered. And so just generally speaking, more broadly, that does raise the question in all of these different industries that are consolidating down to a handful of oligarchs, essentially, to what extent is the public playing into that? And what to what extent do they like it? Because, yeah, when you go to a when you when you go to another city and you don't know anything, but well, I know the Golden Arches and I know Starbucks and I know, you know, I know these places. So, I, you know, here I am in in Beijing, but I don't know. I don't want to I don't wanna eat something weird. I don't know. I'll just go to the thing that I know. And people play into essentially the the flattening of everything, the consolidation of control in the hands of a few corporations, because people like like brands. They're comforting, and uh, unfortunately, they kind of herd themselves into the cattle pen. Yeah, the classic: you go on holiday, and people end up getting KFC and McDonald's. As you said, it's a it's a safer bet, and I mean, everyone's had a, you know a cheeky one maybe in the airport, but. Again, yeah, people feel comfortable with these brands. And again, just with kind of um, the censorship of these companies, again, is becoming more consolidated. You know, they always promote, obviously, the news media, the top search results every time, or always the media, you know, governments are trying to get involved with controlling, you know, disinformation. And then you have the whole fact checker world, which I know you've done uh, work on, uh, like who will fact check the fact checkers and whether they get their money and, you know, who's on their board and all these different things, ex-government officials, military. They're, they're, obviously, there's a there's a big picture there. Um, but, yeah, as we're closing up on, I know you have to jump off soon, are there any just final comments you want to make about uh, Larry Fink, uh, kind of his idea for where he wants to see the world go or BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, where this is all leading to? Yeah. Uh, and then it's just a final, maybe a solution. I know you did yeah. a recent episode on um, solutions to BlackRock, so I will put that on the screen and point people there. But yeah, just any final comments uh, on where you see this going and maybe a solution or solutions? Yes. Well, thank you for pointing it in that direction, because that's exactly what I think. That's the element that's missing from this conversation. OK, yes, we understand the problem in the consolidation of power that comes with these trillions and trillions of dollars in investable capital capital that is uh, invested in corporations like BlackRock and Vanguard, etc. But yeah, what is the solution? What is the answer to this? And 
really, I mean, there are different ideas that people have, and people uh, people can see that solutions watch that I did, where I was talking about some of the types of ideas that have been floated in the past for ways, essentially, well, okay, we don't like these investment firms and what they're doing. Are there ways that we can invest our wealth that will steward a different type of um, uh, environment uh, around us, etc.? Uh, yes. Okay. So there's that aspect to it. But I think fundamentally, this has to come down to the fact that, yes, uh, to a certain extent, the fact checkers are right when it comes to BlackRock and Vanguard and something, uh, places like that. It's that they, no, they are, they don't necessarily control these trillions. Well, yes, they, they kind of manage the trillions of dollars, but it's not theirs. It's ours. And it's ours either because you literally become an investor in BlackRock or in Vanguard, you buy into their index funds or what have you, or you pay into the pension fund and who knows what, I don't know what my government pension fund is doing. I guess they're investing it wisely. I'll, uh, anyway, I'll get lots of money when I retire, right? <laughs> anyway, <coughs> but most people don't know or care or think about that. And yeah, those like the Japanese government uh, pension investment fund, the largest pension fund in the world, largely invested in BlackRock, of course, right? Uh, this is where this money tends to funnel up, and it's coming from us. It is our money. It is our wealth. It is our participation in these systems that make it possible. Similarly, when it comes to, say, the media, uh, it is our time, our energy, our attention is being directed at these products from these companies. And to a certain extent, that is a choice that you are making. I am going to choose to, I'm going to, I'm going to sign up for Netflix and watch the latest Netflix uh, uh, offering. Or when it comes to, again, the consolidation of the food supply, I'm going to choose to go to McDonald's and eat that burger rather than to go to the farmer's market and buy something from a local farmer. All of these things are choices that we are making. And Again, I can't, you know, it's one of those things. Yeah, no single person choosing to do something differently is going to change the entire world. But enough people doing it really would change the entire world, wouldn't it? And at any rate, what is our responsibility as individuals? Well, for what we do as individuals, that is our ultimate responsibility. And the buck stops with each person. So every single day, we are making choices that influence and affect the power of the Larry Finks or the Rupert Murdoch's or the Bill Gates's of the world to do what they do, because ultimately they're using our wealth and our literal money or energy or investments of time and capital and what have you. They're using that and profiting from it and then steward and then using it essentially and for all of their nefarious purposes to um, herd us into the cattle pen, etc. So at any rate, that's where I think the bottom line really lies. Um, again, I can't say that your individual choice is going to change the world, but it could change your world at any rate. And if we cannot even fathom how to get off of this freight train that's hurtling towards this brick wall of the Great Reset at 100 miles an hour, how how on earth are we going to, uh, if we can't figure out a way off of this, then I guess just lay down and wait for it to happen. But uh, ultimately, I think we have to start taking personal responsibility at the very least for our actions, our wealth, where our money is going. And the the rest will, will sort itself out. But I, I think if we become that example for others, we can at least uh, show people that there are other ways of, of living on this planet. And I think that fundamentally, I know that's the big philosophical thing that 
Yeah, who cares? Just get to the solution. But no, I think the solution really does come from that awareness and that change that each one of us has to undertake in the way that we live. Yeah, well, I think that's definitely a good way to leave things. Um, I know you're a big solutions guy now, so next time I'll give you a bit more time. But as we've said already, uh, we'll point people towards your recent solutions, BlackRock episode. I'll put it up on the screen, put it in the show notes. Um, but I'd really like to thank you for coming on. Uh, especially at 10 at night in Japan. Uh, really appreciate it, especially with someone like me with a smaller audience. Uh, you've done wonders for me uh, and my channel and uh, other people like Patrick McFarlane also mentioned that. So uh, thank you for your tireless work and for coming on the show. And I'll, I'll, I'll let you get off so you could probably go to sleep and do this all over again. <laughs> I'm half asleep already, but I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you.